something I didn't have uh, time to explain on uh, Monday, which I thought was important. I sort of raced through a history of the word Hindu. And um, so I want to go over that again and explain it perhaps a little more clearly. And uh, so I can introduce a few Sanskrit terms which are relevant to explanation. There is a common philosophical term, Upadhi, which is, um, well, if anyone here is linguistically inclined, it's, uh, you've heard of the word Samadhi, like the last stage of yoga, which means to fully place the mind in something. Anyway, so Adi means to intensely place something, and then Upa, within an object. So Upadhi means uh, a designation or a substitute. For example, let's say that a friend of yours is coming over to your house and you know that your friend has a red Ferrari. Right? So, so when you see a red Ferrari coming down your street, you say, oh, there's so-and-so. Now, technically, you haven't actually seen your friend because your friend has, uh, you know, tinted windows and everything. So, still, when you see the car, you sort of, you treat the car as if it's the person. So, by seeing the car, you've seen the person. That, that's an empathy. That's okay. It happens in the best of public universities. So, um, so, you see the car... And you say, that's so-and-so. In other words, because the car sort of stands for the person. Or let's say you see someone you know in a, in a play. Let's say the person is completely... Uh, <laughs> you're lucky this is not the Middle Ages. And, uh, no corporal punishment. <laughs> So, let's say you see someone in a disguise or in a costume in some kind of theatrical thing or, you know, some type of, uh, I don't know, espionage thing. So, you see the person, you don't actually see the person, but you see them in a costume and yet you know that's the person. So, the relevance here of this term of party, that one thing stands for another, or any symbol, you know, you see a symbol that stands for something, uh, is that the body taking the body, the physical body, to be the self, is considered to be an upadi. Upadi. So, so from the Vedanta point of view, from the Bhagavad Gita point of view, basically from the Hindu philosophical point of view, the real person is the soul, the Atman. And yet at the present time, we are embodied souls. We are within these bodies. We are incarnated and reincarnated. And again... So, so if I see you coming, uh, obviously what I see is your body, not your soul, let's say if I'm not enlightened, and yet I call the body you, or I see the body, I say, well, that's you, just as when I see your car coming, I say that you are coming. And actually, the, a vehicle, whether it's a car, a horseless carriage at the present time, or back in earlier Vedic times, a carriage with horses, so a vehicle is always compared to the body. 
just as there's a passenger in a carriage, or horseless carriage, so the soul is the passenger in the body. Just as we see the vehicle coming, we say that's the person. So we see the body, we say that's the person. Although you're not really seeing the person. The person is actually the soul inside. So the relevance of this is that, um, so that's the body. Now obviously the, the body's designations, if you have an American body, or a German body, or a Nigerian body, or a Brazilian body, black or white body, male or female body, tall, short, rotund, or <laughs> twiggy, or, you know, whatever. There was a model back in the 60s called Twiggy, actually. It was extremely thin. You know that? Amazing. What has survived. So, I wonder whatever happened to her. So, anyone know? Well, she's on a TV show. Oh. Uh, oh. She, she needs to be on a TV show. Well, if anyone needs a paper topic. <laughs> <laughs> so. So anyway, whatever kind of body you have, however your body is gendered or whatever ethnic or racial kind of body you've got or the size or et cetera, et cetera, age, those are all parties. So to say that, for example, I am so many years old, or I am black or white or green or blue, or I am tall or short, or I am an American or an Indian or this or that, is to impose upon oneself, there's actually a technical Sanskrit word, aropana, uh, which means to impose, the it can be used, often used philosophically to impose something. So we impose those designations upon ourselves. So if you say this is a black person, a white person, a this or that, or a tall or short, a male or female, uh, we are imposing on the pure soul the bodily designations. So that's upadi. Now, there are two other very common Sanskrit philosophical terms, Vyavaharika and uh, Paramartika. Vyavaharika Artha. I know, it's an amazing story soon to be made into a major motion picture. <laughs> so I'll wait for the movie. So, the word, the word Yavahara in Sanskrit means sort of ordinary social intercourse. And Artha, of course, means meaning. In other words, even back in the good old Vedic times when people were doing Vedanta and all that, if you're filling out an application it says like, you know, where were you born? Like we throw out applications, last name, first name, middle name, date of birth, and so on. So let's say you're applying to a graduate school, and where it says date of birth, you quote from the Gita, the jayate, mriyate, the soul is never born and never dies. And so on. I mean, it's interesting, you probably won't be admitted. So people have, most philosophers, the ones who are not completely immersed in their philosophy and spaced out, even the philosophers that sort of understood that you have to be practical in the real world. That when I see someone's carriage coming or whatever, and I say, that's so-and-so, most of the time it's right. And to say that I was born in this place and I'm so many years old and I'm, you know, male or female, it's just practical. Because in the quote-unquote, the real world, or so to speak, in the real illusory world, um, sometimes it's just relevant. 
like what your gender is, how old you are, and where you were born, and so on and so forth. And so, when we sort of put aside the highest philosophy for the moment and just say, okay, I'm so many years old, this is my gender, blah, blah, blah. That's called Vyavaharita Arda. That is a meaning or sense of things which is just for ordinary social intercourse. But, if we are, let's say, engaged in serious philosophical discourse or we are trying to understand in, in an ultimate sense, who am I and where have I come from? So this is really getting serious and spiritual and philosophical. Then you can't just say, well, I'm this body or I'm so many years old or I'm this gender or that race or whatever. So if we're speaking philosophically and more spiritually, then if you, for example, accept the Bhagavad Gita, which is the, you know, the sort of like the most popular book in Hinduism, then the answer is that it's appropriate to say, actually, I'm unborn, as the Gita says. I'm unborn and I'll never die because I'm eternal soul. So, these two different levels of meaning, Gavaharika and uh, Paramartika, conventional and uh, the highest meaning, are philosophical terms. And Shankara, for example, uses this. Shankara will use it in his own way to say that the world as we see it is real in only in this sense, the Gavaharika sense, whereas the world uh, in, a high, in the highest sense is not real, it's just Brahman. The world as we see it is not real. And almost all these different, whether it's uh, typical Buddhist philosophers or different Vedantists, all of these major philosophers will say that the world as we ordinarily see it and understand it is not the highest truth. There's something else that's more important. Now, what that something else is, what they disagree about, is it emptiness? Is it just an impersonal Brahman? Or is it ultimately the presence of an infinite personal God? So what the something else is, they'll disagree on, but at least they all agree that the ordinary way the world is, or the, way, the ordinary, ordinary way we see the world is not the highest truth. So that's just the Vyavaharika. Now, uh, the way this relates to uh, what I was talking about at the end of Monday's um, adventure is that calling yourself a Hindu, for example, or a, you could say, or a Muslim, or this or that, uh, from the Vedanta point of view, it's just an upadi. And therefore, to have wars over these things is not a great idea. Because ultimately, uh, we are, from, from the Vedanta point of view, eternal souls. And uh, we are not Hindu or Jewish or Christian or Muslim. We're actually just eternal souls. And all eternal souls are basically the same brand. It, you know, the same kind of thing. They're all, they're all simply pure souls. And so... Uh, what I did, sort of, uh, perhaps too quickly at the end of Monday's lecture, was I traced three historical stages in the use, in India, of the word Hindu. This uh, mispronunciation from Persia of the Sanskrit word Sindhu. Have you studied Zoroastrian, Zoroastrianism at all? The thing with the, the goddess Ahura Mazda? Never heard of it. Anyway. Okay, I was going to show you another, the same sound thing, S to H, from Asura to Ahura, but never mind. So, in the first historical period, basically for thousands and thousands of years, up until recently, the word Hindu was simply not used in India. It's just not used. It's not an Indian word. And then the second historical stage 
which let's say is about, oh, maybe, well, since the Muslims uh, invited themselves in, is the Vyavaharic uh, Artha stage. It's this thing where the word Hindu is used only for conventional things. It's not a serious term. So that when Hindus are speaking to Muslims, and that's what Muslims call them. If, if someone has power of life and death over you, and uh, tends to sometimes be violent and capricious in the use of their power, and they call you, they have a certain nickname for you, you may go ahead and use that nickname when you're talking to them. Because, it, you know, maybe, as the mafia says, it may be good for your health. And so, <laughs> so therefore, in the second stage, after the Muslim invasion, we find that the word Hindu is used, almost always Muslim speakers, speaking to everyone else, all the non-Muslims whom they call Hindus, and uh, people, let's say, who follow various Vedic paths will accept the word Hindu only when they're speaking to Muslims, because they don't use it among themselves. When they're talking to each other, they won't use the word. The third historical phase is the modern phase, roughly for the last 200 years, in response to, well, the English uh, takeover of India, and the English somewhat, you know, sort of intellectually sophisticated, almost academic attempt to uh, trash Vedic culture and substitute it with Western Christian culture. And so, without going into all the historical dynamics, uh, in the, for the last 200 years, the Paramartha, uh, Hindus tend to, or people in India tend to call themselves Hindus and really mean it, which is something new. In other words, that's really who they think they are. I'm a Hindu. And they use the term when they're talking to each other and really mean it. So people in India using the word Hindu when they're talking to each other, people within the tradition, and actually meaning it is something that's about 200 years old. Which may come as a surprise to almost everybody. But that's the history of the word. By the way, uh, the, I mentioned Chaitanya. One thing that Professor O'Connell, who's retired now, he was a, a, a prominent scholar, taught at the University of Toronto for many years, which is a good school, even though yeah, it's not the United States. And <laughs> Professor O'Connell uh, made the point that when the, the Chaitanya movement, we talked about the Chaitanya movement, the Chaitanya Krishna movement, when that movement was prominent, in uh, Bengal and other parts of India, even Uttar Pradesh, because of the Vrindavan presence, that actually uh, communal violence or communal tensions, in other words, like Hindus and Muslims and Sikhs killing each other, uh, basically seemed to stop. Because the, the teaching, Chaitanya's teaching was precisely that all these terms, like, you know, I'm a Hindu, or you're a Muslim, or that's a Sikh, whatever, are sort of upadis. These are designations, and actually we're all pure souls. And we're all equally part of God. So communalism, what they call in India communalism. India is an extremely diverse, ethnically extremely diverse place, ethnically and religiously. And so when different ethnic and religious groups start to fight each other, that's called communalism. As we just saw in Bombay, actually, in Mumbai. So, um, so the communalism actually quieted down. And there, was relatively, there was relative peace in India between all these different groups at least in those areas where people took seriously uh, this teaching of Chaitanya, that, uh, you know, 
the, the, the highest teaching that we're all souls. Yes. Um, how you said that um, I'm still kind of confused about how much of India was um, was influenced by the well. For one thing, for one thing, one of the main Muslim areas in India, which is which is Bengal. Okay. Because when, when India got split up, the two Muslim countries were, uh, well, it's now two. Bengal and, and the Punjab, most of the Punjab, the Punjab became Pakistan. So certainly in Bengal, which is one of the main Muslim areas, one of the main areas where there was such tension. Okay. So is he, um, is he brought in that hypothesis to areas maybe like Punjab, where Gurunada might have been... He doesn't talk about that. It's a very interesting question, but he doesn't talk about that. Okay. So that's a very interesting question. Well, what we know is that, that, the, that unfortunately, uh, the Sikhs the community, or fortunately, I mean, I can't say unfortunately, it's just historically what happened is that at a certain point, they made a conscious decision. They had to either go totally non-political or totally militarized, and they chose to militarize. And so uh, much of the Sikh history, especially during the time of the last, uh, certainly the last uh, six or seven of their gurus, before they stopped having gurus in that sense, uh, a lot of history was just battling the Mughal Empire. So, uh, so that's something I want to say to myself. Then uh, Hinduism in the West, which is the chapter that you all meditated upon at every waking moment. So... Um, there, there, there's a list of uh, Hindu teachers that came to the West. Um, one comment I found interesting in, in, in that chapter, page 315, unlike Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam, Hinduism not, is not intrinsically a missionary tradition. It's not intrinsically a missionary tradition. Since it is so entwined with issues of caste lineages, re regional affiliations, and so on, Quite remarkably, despite its lack of significant missionizing, various aspects of Hinduism have permeated the West, you know, like yoga, meditation, and tantra, and all this stuff. Beyond the confines of the Hindu communities abroad, religious movements, and in particular certain meditative practices, have begun to be embraced in large numbers by non-Hindus worldwide. So it's what happened in Southeast India, Asia, Southeast Asia earlier, what is now Singapore, which is a Sanskrit word, Singapore, Lion City, Singapore and Indonesia and uh, Thailand and so on, which is not the place you want to fly to, right, these days. Thailand, but you know, the airport's all taken over. Anyway, that's so, so there's a tendency in Southeast Asia and today in the West where rather than going around and, and, and sort of like proselytizing that if you don't do this, you're going to go to hell forever, or if you don't do this, you're going to die right now, uh, there's been a tendency for people to adopt when they've had the freedom to do so, when they've had the freedom to do so, there's a tendency for people to adopt this Vedic culture uh, because they believe that it is a, an impressive um, culture. It's an impressive, impressive culture, impressive philosophy, spirituality. And so there's been a tendency, actually, uh, that was not a possibility, of course, in the Muslim world in Islamic countries because... Uh, that would be basically a capital crime for a Muslim to become infatuated with Hinduism. And Europe during the Middle Ages was not a great candidate. But 
what we find is that in those societies which sort of have that freedom, that uh, for forever, actually, this culture has been very impressive. People have tended to adopt different aspects of it. So, um, and, and this is true, by the way, the Roman Empire before, uh, well, before it collapsed, and, well, it, it adopted Christianity just before it collapsed, at least the Western Empire. But another remark which I thought was significant before I get into the list of, of um, Indian teachers that went to the West, is that uh, by 326 BCE, when most of you weren't born, by 326 BCE, Alex of Macedonia's eastward expansion, because Alexander basically conquered the Persian Empire. I mean, there was already an empire. Alexander's empire was, it was, there was already an empire there. He sort of conquered it, so he had a ready-made, off-the-shelf, shrink-wrapped empire. Because he just conquered the Persian Empire. So he went east. By 326 BCE, Alexander of Macedonia's eastward expansion passed the Indus River, that means into India, irrevocably linked Indian civilization to west, to the west. Hellenic, the Hellenic, the Hellenic Empire was fertile soil for the intermingling of knowledge, both religious and secular. Now, there have been countries and times in history that were not fertile soil for intermingling because they were fanatical and uh, violent. But uh, this Greco-Roman civilization was fertile soil for intermingling in many ways, and not in all ways. It was a liberal, open, freedom of religion, freedom of thought, diverse, eclectic civilization. And we have one again in America, and basically in, in many parts of the world today. So again, Indian culture, when you have that situation, it tends to be influential as a great classical civilization. So, uh, I want to talk about Krishnamurti, who, uh, that was in the book, there was a Krishnamurti. I don't, how many of you, before you read the book, had heard of Krishnamurti? Well, times have changed. You obviously were not young in the 60s. So, at least back in the 60s, Krishnamurti was, was quite, uh, he was one of the prominent sort of New Age guru figures. And, uh, He taught that religious organizations, beliefs, and teachers are impediments to one's liberation. Down with the religious organizations, down with the beliefs, down with the teachers. Of course, except for himself. Are impediments to one's liberation since these construe spiritual awakening as a graded journey. In other words, when you have a spiritual organization and teachings and beliefs, you tend to have a goal, and as soon as you have a goal, you know, someone's closer to the goal, or someone's actually made the goal, and someone's just beginning, so you tend to have hierarchies, and in Krishnamurti's liberal mind, this just serves the interests and reinforces the self-centered, egotistic consciousness of people in religious organizations. So the only reason that you would actually have a hierarchy is to uh, look down on and exploit other people, right? I mean... There's no other reason why you'd ever have a teacher-student relationship. So, what's interesting about Krishnamurti, and actually when I was on a writing retreat for a few months in Ojai, California, uh, I happened to stay in the neighborhood that he built. I mean, he, the story of Krishnamurti is that he was sort of chosen as something like the Dalai Lama of theosophy, in the sense that uh, Annie Besant 
who was the prominent leader after Madame Blavatsky and uh, the Colonel, Anyway, the colonel. So, uh, she, in India, somehow chose him, or thought she recognized him as a child, as a child, as the avatar, as, you know, the blessed one, who would be the next great spiritual leader. And uh, that's a dangerous thing to do, you know, because children don't always grow up the way you think they're going to. So... Anyway, so she chose him and made him this big figure, and he did grow up, and uh, left the organization, and kind of split the organization. So be careful about choosing child avatars. Anyway, so this um, Krishnamurti, what's interesting is, for example, he's against religious organizations, but he formed one, or one formed around him. And I, I live right in the middle of it, it wasn't my intention, I just happened to rent house in a nice part of Ojai. So Ojai is this nice little sort of, uh, I don't want to say new age, but uh, sort of nice little town uh, up in the mountains just north of Ventura, California, if you know the geography. Anyway, so um, so there's an organization around Krishnamurti. He's against uh, beliefs, but that was his belief. I mean, to say that we shouldn't have beliefs is a belief. It's like never say never. And to and he says, you know, we should, we should reject all teachers. But he was a teacher, and uh, we shouldn't believe any books. But he said that himself in many books. He actually wrote many books to make that point, that we don't need books. So, what I've noticed is, there's a certain, I mean, historically, you can observe people who really come crashing down in a very heavy-handed way on hierarchy, and they want to flatten all the hierarchies, level everything. But when all the dust clears, they seem to be on top of everything. And so it's almost like they clear, they level all the hierarchies so they won't have any competition. And I'll give you a few historical examples of this. Uh, and I don't mean to be too pejorative, but uh, that's why I see it. Uh, Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Uh, one of his big points was sola scriptura, only scripture. In other words, we don't need all this Renaissance philosophy, don't need Thomas Aquinas, don't need all this fancy Greek-influenced and Greek-contaminated philosophizing and theologizing. You've got the Bible. That's enough. We don't need science because Luther was not interested in the idea that nature is another sacred book given by God. There's the Bible, but there's the book of nature. Nope. He's sort of like a Palestinian purist in that sense. You know, all we need is the Bible. And also, another major point of Luther was the priesthood of believers. We don't need priests or bishops or cardinals or certainly not a pope. That's like, you know, we certainly don't want that. So every believer, you can read the Bible in your own language, right? That was Luther's point. You don't need... Bible don't need it to be mediated by a priest. You can read it yourself, and if you believe it, you're a priest, priesthood of believers. <laughs> so there's uh, no hierarchy. The only problem is that although we just take the Bible, you really had to take Luther's interpretation of the Bible, and if anyone disagreed with Luther, he would basically have an anger fit. I mean, he would just go nuts. And, and his rages included all kinds of filthy language, and uh, all kinds of, uh, yeah, just really, 
being nasty and bad, bad language and everything, even against other priests or, uh, or other philosophers. So, in other words, uh, no hierarchies, but you, everybody has to accept my interpretation of the Bible. And he would get, as I said, extremely, uh, he would go into a rage, just a horrible rage if anyone disagreed with him. But we don't need priests. That's interesting. You got, you, got, you got a religion named after it, right? Because you don't need priests. So, another historical example would be someone dear to all of us, Chairman Mao. Or for that matter, we could throw in, uh, let's say, Stalin or Lenin, other luminaries of the 20th century. In the sense that these people, in the name of Marxism, as they saw it, or communism, uh, wanted to flatten hierarchies. So obviously Luther and Chairman Mao are very different people, but still, there's a tendency to flatten all the hierarchies. No one's better than anybody else. But, you study the history of communist regimes, one thing that's, first of all, they're basically all violent tyrannies, dictatorships, and uh, there was a, a type of social equality, except for the communists, because they were on top, and they lived it up, and they had all kinds of, they had a real fancy life, and basically could, could do whatever they wanted, and live like royalty. They lived like royalty, if you study it. And so again, flatten the hierarchies, but then the flattener of the hierarchies becomes God on earth. Uh, I had another example here. Oh, Krishnamurti. I used to actually take my walks in these uh, nice groves in Ojai, in the mountains there, where he used to walk, so probably uh, the resemblance ends there. So, so Krishnamurti again is saying that you don't need teachers, but what is he? But he's giving lectures, writing books, and teaching everybody. And you don't need books. You can throw away all your holy books, but of course, don't throw away his books, because he wrote a lot of books. And you shouldn't have any beliefs except his. So this idea, you know, this never say never thing, uh, so a lot of people were not satisfied with Krishnamurti. I don't go into all the gory details, but uh, another, actually the next teacher we're going to talk about, Krishnamacharya, who was the teacher of uh, two, probably the two most famous uh, Hatha Yoga teachers in the West uh, that... Uh, Iyengar, B.K.S. Iyengar, who wrote Light on Yoga, and Joyce, uh, Pati, uh, Pati, Pati, Pati Joyce, um, were students of his, and uh, Iyengar actually uh, confided to a, a very close friend of mine that, um, who was studying with him, that um, Krishnamurti, he had actually a sort of a, 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 well, a very negative opinion of Krishnamurti, based on personal contact with him and the way he was treated by him when he was down and needed help and didn't get it. And that Krishnamurti, at the end of his life, uh, was not really in a great consciousness. He was actually... Is it Krishnamurti or Krishnamurti? Krishnamurti. 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 Yeah, Krishnamurti. At the end of his life, which, you know, according to Bhagavad Gita, everything you do in life is tested. So that if you really lived a pure spiritual life, you sort of go sailing out of this world in high consciousness. There's even a story in uh, the sixth book of the Bhagavad Purana, the Bhagavatam, that there was a great sage named Didichi Muni 
who was so advanced in his God consciousness that when he left his body, when he, he didn't even notice it. It was like sometime later he noticed, like, where'd the material body go? So that at the time of death, he didn't, even, he didn't lose consciousness. He actually went fully conscious from this world to the next. And so in this whole, really, yoga tradition, how you leave this world is a test of how you lived and test of your consciousness. And apparently Krishnamurti... Uh, didn't have the greatest experience at the end. So, anyway, this kind of teaching, no books, no beliefs, no teachers and everything, is, uh, I think it's somewhat artificial, because as soon as you say that, you're presenting yourself as a teacher. Anyway, there's the whole uh, Hatha Yoga tradition, which I've just alluded to, and of course that's very popular. I don't think I need to tell you about that. I mean, does anyone here not know that yoga is taught in this country? Okay, everybody knows that. So generally what's taught is the asanas. And of course it's been sort of athleticized for Western uh, customers. But um, the asanas and sometimes breathing exercises, which are just the very preliminary physical part of the yoga system, just to sort of get your body under control so that you can do yoga, which is actually dealing with consciousness and trying to get your consciousness where it's supposed to be. So what we call yoga nowadays was just the preliminary part to sort of get in shape so you could sit down for long periods of time and do the real work. Maharishi, Mahesh Yogi, have you heard of him? TM, there's a TM center actually down on 2nd Avenue, Southwest. Basically, uh, the TM quote from our book is presented clearly as not a religion, lifestyle or philosophy. It's not a religion, a lifestyle, or a philosophy. But a simple technique that reduces stress and enhances mental tranquility and as a result brings with it other health and even economic benefits. So I think that kind of, that's what it is. That's what they claim it is and there you go. So that's clear. So that, that just shows you the range. That's an example of something which has sort of nominally come to India and uh, is honest and says this is what we are and this is what we're not. Yes? Um, you said that it, it only brings health and economic benefits? I didn't say only. I, did that, I just quoted okay. from the book. Okay. That um, presented clearly as not a religion, lifestyle, or philosophy, but a simple technique that reduces stress and enhances mental tranquility and as a result brings with it other health and even economic benefits. So the transcendental part, where does that go? But I guess I'll have to ask them. That, yeah, it's, um, I suppose it's, it's all relative. Transcendental, I guess, to being stressful or to not being um, tranquil. But that's what it is. I mean, it's honest. It's not claiming to be something it isn't. You know, the Beatles got into it. And uh, the Beatles got into it for a while and then apparently they had a bad experience and sort of like the... Uh, word, sort of like the inside word, is that, that that song, Fool on the Hill, was actually a song about their experience in India. With their teacher. So, uh, ISKCON, Hare Krishna, we're going to talk about, there's a separate class for that, so I won't go into it too much. Now, one quote, which I just picked up one quote, which I thought was kind of amusing, it's many temples worldwide have even begun to attract Hindus from the diaspora. 
Uh, interestingly, it actually previously, almost uh, in many cities in America, attracted more Hindus previously. It, it's been attracting Hindus for a very long time, but in India there's actually millions and millions of uh, followers all over India. But um, when Indians first began migrating to America, there weren't very many of them, and there were actually hardly any Hindu temples in the whole country. And so the Hare Krishna temples were really the only temples in town for most of them. And so they would go to those temples. Then as more Indians came and they began to organize, they raised funds and, and they built normal Hindu temples. And uh, that's where they mo mostly go now. And nowadays in big cities where there's a lot of Hindus, say like Chicago, New York, or Los Angeles, San Francisco, Houston, and so on and so forth, uh, you don't even find Hindu temples. You find Gujarati temples or temples, you know, South Indian temples, and, and they all actually have their own regional temples. But in the very early days, I mean, when I was a kid, there were hardly any Indians in this country. Of course, you may, you may say that's a very long time ago, but um, anyway. Uh, so, Rajneesh. Now, here's a very interesting personality, Rajneesh, and I've got some stories here to tell you, if I can fit them in, which I'm sure will keep you on the edge of your seats. So, uh, Rajneesh, I'll quote from the textbook, also achieved some notoriety, that's an understatement, because he approved of tantric-oriented practices of co-opting sexual energy. That's an academic way of saying a lot of sex. For the attainment of spiritual goals. And also there was another figure, Adi Da, I think he's still alive, who was first Bubba Free John and then Da something, and now he's... Anyway, somehow I got on their mailing list several years ago, and I kept in all this material. On it. So, anyway. <coughs> now, but Rod's niche received massive, massive financial contributions, and this led to scandalous displays of conspicuous consumerism. You can see that Professor Rodriguez is not enthusiastic about that particular project. So, mass scandalous displays... Over 90 Rolls Royces. Osha. Osha, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Rajneesh. Who was born in a Jain community, but, you know, moveon.org. So, anyway, over 90 Rolls Royces. Over 90 Rolls Royces. At least, I'm sure there was no danger of him having too few Rolls Royces in any particular situation. So, he also had the notion that enlightenment fundamentally means to return to our original childlike innocence when we have lots of expensive cars. A childhood innocence that was lost through the effects of social and religious conditioning. Now, well, first of all, I'll tell you some stories because I was, I, I was following in the news all these things. So I, I'm quoting you know, the most reliable possible authority, the world media. But, um, what happened is this. Uh, Rajneesh began to be, uh, or Osho, back then he was sort of known more as Rajneesh. He, um, which, he, began, he became popular, he was writing books, and he attracted various followers, so they took some money, because they were making a lot of money, and bought a lot of land in uh, eastern Oregon. Now, if you know what the West Coast is like, uh, it's either, once you get north of, let's say... Santa Cruz, it's either rainforest on the west side or sort of semi-arid on the east side because there's these big mountains, the coast range. Anyway, 
I'm from the West Coast. I'll skip all the geography. But anyway, in the East Coast, in the East part of Oregon, which is, uh, they bought all this land, and uh, they, they had this community. It became a very large community. And at a certain point, they got the bright idea to politically take over the county. And so what they did is, or, or the area, so I remember this. They, they, they bought these sort of like old Greyhound buses, the, you know, like serious buses. And they, they went down to L.A., and that was, this was in the 60s, and early 70s, when there were just like unlimited young people sort of hanging out southern, you know, around the West Coast, just sort of <coughs> hanging out, living on the street, so there's like as many as you'd ever want. So they take these buses down there to L.A., and they just bring up busloads of people in altered states of consciousness, and and just bring the, by the hundreds, and they, they all, then they would register to vote. So they're just like bussing up all these homeless people and young people and registering them to vote. Now, uh, if you know this, the history of uh, Pythagoras, who, when he wasn't inventing theorems, uh, Pythagoras, he actually, um, he had a spiritual ashram. He, he, had, he was very intellectual on Plato. I mean, I can't get into it now, but fascinating figure, Pythagoras. But he had these spiritual communities, which he taught, sort of basic Bhagavad Gita philosophy, and they became very politically influential, and because they got involved in politics, the, their political opponents one day kind of went to the ashram and started killing everybody, or destroying their ashram, and that was the end of That was in southern Italy, which was part of Magna Grecia, part of the Greek world. So, spiritual communities getting heavily involved in politics. I mean, see what happened with the Sikhs, when one of the gurus thought, you know, give a you know, a little funny money to this prince that was fleeing from the Mughal emperor. And so, similarly in Oregon, when Rajneesh decided they would take over, they were having, or, you know, I don't know, I guess you might say orgies, or you could just say tantric practices, whatever you want to call it. And then when they tried to politically take over, this started because the eastern part of Oregon is not blue, it is red. It's sort of like ranch country. It's sort of like an extension of Wyoming or something. So, when he started to take over politically, there was a huge reaction, and people started getting on the phone and calling people and other people, and, and the next thing you know, uh, the FBI was on them, and uh, just like they got Al Capone on tax evasion, so they got Raj Nish on immigration fraud, because they had lots of money, and they had lots of people around the world, they were moving people around from place to place, and so they would sort of have these fake marriages to get people visas. So they got him on immigration fraud. Raj Nees, it's interesting, sorry, I, I, I told you I'd keep you awake with these stories. So Raj Nees got word that they were coming to bust him. They were going to come in, you know, the, uh, the feds, those federales were coming. <laughs> and so he had a private jet. Because, you know, because Rolls Royce, I guess, are not all-terrain vehicles. So, he took off in this private jet, and he planned to flee the country before they got him. And so what they did is, the, uh, those federales, scrambled a government jet and actually forced him to land. I forget where they forced him to land, but I'll, you know, I'll look up the exact airport. But anyway, they forced him to land somewhere in the continental United States and arrested him, and he went to jail. He actually went to jail, Rajneesh. And uh, meanwhile, while all this was going on, he had a 
because he was tantric, he had his female right-hand man. Anyway, he had this lady, this Indian lady, who then stole millions of dollars from him and hightailed it to Europe. So he's in jail. His, you know, his, his most intimate associate, his tantric lady, steals basically millions and millions of dollars, heads off for Europe. She gets busted. He's in jail. His followers claim that when he's in jail, the government's radiating his food to kind of, you know, get him. Make a long story short, after some time, when he finally got out of jail, he became man without a country because he had this he had all these followers, he had all these people, he had to leave America. So they went to these different countries. If you know the history in the Shah of Iran fell and he went to different countries, kept getting kicked out. So Rajneesh would go, like for example, he went to Crete and tried to set up there. He tried to set up, uh, I think, in South America. In different places, and everywhere he went, I guess people would get on the phone, and he got kicked out again. So they were spending a fortune because they were traveling with hundreds and hundreds of people and having to set up a whole community. And then they get kicked out and go to another country. They just He kind of got chased all over the world. Finally, he went back to India where he couldn't get kicked out. Pune, which is uh, Maharashtra, you know, uh, east of Bombay, Mumbai. And so he finally went back there and then went up into the, I guess, Rishikesh area, wherever it is. And by that time, he was getting very sick, and he eventually died. And, uh, well, anyway, that's Rajneesh. So, one thing I wanted to mention about him, oh, my God, is Prabriti, am I going to get to it? Let's see. Prabriti Marg and Nibriti Marg. These are very key terms in, actually, in Hinduism. Marg means path or road. Prabriti, it's... Uh, Vritti means like function, so it's pravritti and nivritti, which means the path of engagement and disengagement. So pravritti means you go out in the world, you work in the world, you do things in the world, you experience things like romance and making money and all this, but you try to do karma yoga. You try to do it in such a way so that you're gradually becoming... Well, karma yoga means so you get married, you have a job, and so on but you try to offer the fruit of your work. Remember Bhagavad Gita? We used to do Bhagavad Gita. That you offer the fruit of your work to God, and so it becomes karma yoga. Nibriti mark means that you just renounce, like sannyas. You don't get married. You don't go out and work in the world and make a lot of money. You just directly renounce, like a shramana tradition, something like that, renunciate. And so... That Rajneesh, or Osho, his, his point was that somehow this, like the whole tantric point, somehow this sexual energy, like we have sexual desires, but somehow you should use that, work with it, so that it, you kind of come onto the spiritual path. So the question we raised, which we probably won't get to until maybe Friday, if anyone shows up, is that um, what does it really mean to work with your material desires? Like, like, because obviously, you can just go out and have a lot of sex and make a lot of money, and at the end of the day, you're not enlightened. I mean, a lot of people in history have had a lot of sex and, you know, done a lot of material things. It's not that they all became enlightened. So it's not that just by engaging with the world, you know, all the lights go on. So what does it mean to engage with the world in such a way that you work through your desires and don't just succumb to them or indulge them? What's the difference between indulging selfishness and actually engaging it in a way so that you work through it, and at the end of it, you're enlightened. And what I would say, and I'll, I think I'll just end here because uh, time's up, is that I think Rajneesh's um, 
notion of what it means to work with your sexual desires and all your other desires, your desire to own expensive cars, whatever, was actually a caricature of the actual Pravritti Mark. There really is a path where you work through your desires, but that was a caricature of it, if not a perversion of it. And so maybe, I mean, we'll talk about that next time. So please show up on Friday.